This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today is the third of a summer-long series of podcasts about the systems of camps and ghettos that pervaded Nazi Germany, its satellite states, and the regions it controlled. Earlier this summer, I talked with Jeff McGargy about the Holocaust Museum's Encyclopedia of Camps and Ghettos, and Sarah Helm about the women's camp of Robinsburg. Later in the summer, I'll be speaking with Shelley Klein about the guards who staffed the camps, and with Dan Stone about the end and aftermath of the camp system. Today, though, in the third of the series, I'm thrilled to welcome Nick Vaxman to the show. Nick teaches at University College London and completed earlier uh, a book on German prisons in Nazi Germany. Recently, though, he's turned his attention to concentration camps. And after a couple books uh, published uh, in the early part of this decade that pushed research on the camps further, he's now written a comprehensive survey of the camps titled... Uh, well, KL or KL, I'm not sure which, A History of the Nazi Concentration Camps. It comes in at something around 800 pages, and according to Amazon, something like 2.8 pounds. I use the word comprehensive advisedly, and we'll talk in the interview about what it means to research such a broad and difficult subject. But the book itself is tremendous, a well-conceived mixture of institutional history, narrative storytelling, and careful analysis. I expect it will become the standard history of the camps. It's not always easy to read, and I say that not meaning that it's badly written. It's wonderfully written. Um, but it has the kind of narrative history. It, uh, he writes in a way that makes you feel some of the experiences. I, I read it on the Kindle as I led students across Europe. And I will say, I occasionally found myself having to put my Kindle down and spend some time staring out the window before I went back to it. But it's a wonderful treatment of the subject, and I'm greatly looking forward to talking with him about it. So... With that, Nick, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for the um, very uh, kind introduction, Kelly. So, we always start with the same kind of way, um, asking you to say a little bit about how you came to be interested in the subject of Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. Well, I kind of, I did my doctoral research, um, as you said earlier, on law and terror in Nazi Germany, mm-hmm. Uh, resulting in a book called Hitler's Prisons. And the idea what I was really interested in initially as a PhD student was this question of how a regular legal system operates uh, in a dictatorship like the Third Reich, what the connections, the potential frictions are with the um, political ideology and so on of the regime. So that's really what I was, what I was interested in. Um, And that, by definition, meant that I also started uh, to look at the relationship between regular prisons and the regular law and the system of lawlessness uh, in the concentration camps. And, um, you know, so I read a lot around that topic. And the more I read, the more I realized or was struck that though there are a number of, a huge number of important books on specific aspects of the camps, there wasn't any comprehensive history telling the, 
the story of the development of the camp system, the experiences of the inmates, the actions and backgrounds of the perpetrators in one volume. And the more I thought about that, the more I thought that that would be a, a valuable thing to try and write. And hey, 10 years later, here, here the book is. <laughs> It's a nice warning to present PhD students. <laughs> yes. So, uh, so I have to ask, 10 years later, that seems like a very long time, and yet you point out in the introduction that, that it's not nearly enough time to read everything that's been written. How, how do you decide what to, what to look at? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, the, 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 the literature on the concentration camps, the, 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 there's a, a vast number of Memoirs, in actual fact, there's a, a, a much larger number of memoirs by survivors written in the immediate post-war period. Um, uh, it was very important for me in the book to try and get as many voices of these into, in, into the book, and maybe we can talk about that later. Um, so there's a very large uh, uh, body of, of memoirs. There's also a huge body of scholarly literature on the camps, which emerged especially since the late 80s and then the 90s and since. Um, uh, and on top of that, of course, you have ten, tens of thousands of documents, um, some of which have only been released fairly recently. So I had to make decisions all the way through about um, prioritizing kind of about which uh, documents, which memoirs to pick. Uh, and that was actually one of the most difficult decisions on yeah. some level I had to make because including one story or one individual prisoner meant kind of I, I had to kind of leave somebody else's experiences out. And though we might think of prisoners as some kind of uniform, anonymous mass, actually, the, the more you think about the camps, the more you realize that each prisoner has their own story and their own history, which is shaped by their background, their ethnicity, their jobs, their, their nationality, their age, their gender, and so on. Um, and it was very difficult to, to, to leave some of these stories out. But that said, as you said at the beginning, I mean, the book is 800 odd pages long and I had to make some hard choices then. So, so you could have, I imagine, simply chosen to make this an institutional history without including the kind of stories that you do from a prisoner's perspective. Why, why did you decide to, to include the prisoner perspective? Or maybe I should... Uh, why spend so much time taking care to to include the prisoners' voices? Well, because I think they offer us a perspective on the camps which no kind of general writing can give us. I mean, when I think about myself and what got me into history, you know, as a kid in the first place, then it it it, it was stories. It was individuals, and yeah. the the structures of the camp system are they don't just emerge. They don't just happen. Um, they are made and built by individuals. So it's not just a question of looking at the the victims and the prisoners. It's also a question for me in the book to look at the perpetrators um, and mm -hmm. not again have them <clears throat> as some anonymous mass or as they appear in a lot of survivor memoirs effectively unhinged sadists um <laughs> the the there were some people who we would describe as such but many more men and women who starved the camp system uh, uh had different motives for doing what they did and i think we can't understand the development of the camp system if you only look very generally at the at these structures um so it was it was i mean one of the decisions i made very early on in this book is that this wasn't 
it's also an organizational history. It also tries to analyze and explain why the system moves in, in the very strange way it seems to do. Um, I mean, there is no inherent logic to this. There is no master yeah. plan. Um, and I try to explain why the trajectory is as it is. Um, but I, I decided very early on that it was going to be absolutely essential to tell this also through the eyes of those uh, who experienced, who suffered the camps and those who, who made the camps. The book actually reminds me a little bit of um, Shaw Friedlander's two-volume history of the Holocaust. Was that a model for you or? Well, that's a kind of, I mean, you know, I, 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 that's, that's a model I might aspire to kind of, it's a model <laughs> I will never reach. Um, but certainly kind of, I think Friedlander's integrated history of the Holocaust um, was hugely important for me. I mean, there are a number of books which, which shaped, shaped me or influenced me. And that is mm -hmm. certainly, certainly one of the key ones in, in the way in which he combined already in the first volume, which I read, I think pretty much at the start of my PhD in the nineties, mm -hmm. um, the way he combined the perspectives of the victims of German Jews uh, uh, in the first volume uh, using their testimonies from the time as contemporary as possible, uh, written at a time without high insight, without clarity about where this history would go. Uh, also bringing in the voices of the perpetrators and then also the, the onlookers, uh, the German uh, public uh, who is involved in one way or another in this story as well. So trying to weave this together as a comprehensive, what Friedlander calls integrated history, mm -hmm. was certainly a, a, a model for what I try to do here. So let's turn to the book. And I guess my first question about this is, were, were the concentration camps part of the Nazis' long-term vision for what they would do when they took power? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, the, the, the Nazis sometimes talked about concentration camps before coming to power. Mm. So it's not as if, um, you know, the idea of camps for locking away uh, opponents or nuisances or what the Nazis might call um, community aliens was completely novel to them. That said, um, as I said before, there is no master plan. It, yeah. It's not as if Hitler is appointed as chancellor and then he kind of, you know, opens the desk drawer and takes out the <laughs> manual for concentration camps. What's so striking in many ways about <clears throat> the emergence of the camp system uh, in 1933 is just how chaotic and unorganized and yeah. improvised it is. I mean, we now think of, I mean, take a place like, like Dachau. We now think of Dachau as the, the birthplace of this camp system. It's the only SS camp that lasts all the way through from the beginning mm -hmm. to the end. It's the place where a lot of the SS uh, campus as leaders get their education, if you will, in, in violence and terror. It is the place where the rules and regulations of the camps are, are, are introduced, which then spread to other camps. So Dachau has a hugely important uh, role in this story. But it doesn't start out in this way. It starts out as an improvised camp set up in March 33 in a ramshackle, broken down former uh, munitions factory outside Munich, where the SS takes 100, 120 or so local uh, communists. Um, and kind of the, 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 the guards are actually not SS men, but policemen, and they treat the prisoners reasonably well early on. And 
none of the prisoners and none of the guards could have imagined that this would somehow be the beginning of a yeah. 12-year or longer huge camp system, which then eventually spreads all across Europe. So there is enormous amount of improvisation early on. And as soon as camps are set up in Germany, and there are hundreds and hundreds of these improvised early camps set up to crush the political opposition, as soon as they're set up, they close down again, more or less all of them. Very few of them last for longer than a few weeks or months. Um, so kind of, and, and then we come to this really incredible moment um, in 1934-35 where the Nazi regime effectively has to decide what kind of dictatorship it's going to be. <laughs> is it going to be a authoritarian dictatorship, but one that is based on some kind of Nazified law, uh, in which case they don't need extra legal lawless terror in concentration camps. Uh, And there are a number of Nazi leaders, I mean, Frick, the interior minister, Goering as well, who argue for this kind of Mm. of approach. And then there are others led, of course, by Himmler, uh, the chief of the SS, which has by then taken over the fledgling uh, camp system, who argue that, well, actually, kind of lawless terror is absolutely vital and the Nazi war against its enemies has only just started and it's going to last for, for decades or centuries. Um, and it is this kind of line which is ultimately successful. And Himmler persuades Hitler probably that um, you know, the camps need to stay. And this is then really the beginning of this more organized systematic system. But even looking at the early years, in other words, you can see that there are twists and turns and there is no clear master plan which the regime follows is there so so if there's no master plan what 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 kind of influences in these are uh maybe i should actually let me ask it this way where do the people who are kind of originally creating these first and i I, historians often use the word wild camps Mm -hmm. and i know you're not fond of that or you you think that needs to be moderated or mm-hmm. or carefully considered, but what are the influences they're, they're looking at when they think about how to run these? Well, that's a good point. I mean, I, I, try, to, I try to uncover that in, in, in the book. Um, I mean, some historians of the concentration camps more broadly, more globally, look for links and, and connections between mm-hmm. different types of camp, camp systems in different countries. And uh, you know, the, 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 the gulag, if you will, was invented before the Nazi concentration camps were invented. Um, but I'm not persuaded that the Nazis are really looking uh, very hard outside Germany. The influences which the paramilitaries, who are behind most of these early camps in 1933, the influences they draw on are more the paramilitary experiences of violent street battles and warfare um, in the late period of the Weimar Republic, the failing first German democracy. Um, they also look at experiences which some of them have made in the German military serving in the First World War, for example, seeing sometimes being imprisoned sometimes in POW camps. I mean, a, a number of early concentration camp commandants had actually been prisoners in POW camps in the First mm. World War. Um, and other Nazi activists, given that uh, the Nazis were so often engaged in illegal, brutal, violent behavior in the Weimar years, had seen the prison system, the Weimar prison system from inside. I mean, starting with 
with Hitler, but also, I mean, somebody like Rudolf Hess, the, the later first commandant of Auschwitz, I mean, Hess spent several years in the Weimar period in a penitentiary. So these are men who uh, have learned a lot about disciplinary institutions, about carceral institutions, and about how to terrorize and de-individualize uh, inmates. And I think they draw on a range of these experiences early on. You described the Night of the Long Knives as a, as, a, as a turning point for the camp systems. How is that or why is that? Well, what you have to kind of imagine is that, um, as I say, early on, kind of it's, it's, it's paramilitaries mainly who found or set up most of these camps. That the state through the police also gets involved from early on. Um, and early on, the SA uh, is the main Nazi paramilitary organization, the SA, and that is, which is led by Ernst Röhm. The SS under Himmler is much smaller. They set up fewer camps and they are subordinate, officially at least, to the SA still. So the reason why the Night of so-called Night of Long Knives in, in, in summer 1934 is so significant when Hitler orders that Röhm and the, SS is take, uh, the SA is taken out is that the uh, main agency who's uh, behind this or enacting this, if you will, is the SS. Um, and that leads to the SS kind of becoming predominant in the sphere of lawless terror and consolidating its takeover of the concentration camps. I mean, one of the, one of the big remaining SA camps was the one in Oranienburg, which is next to the German capital, Berlin, and as such has particular prominence. Um, and Oranienburg is then taken over in a very symbolic way, just days after Röhm is shot by the man who had shot Röhm, and that is Theodor Eike, the head of the SS camp system and commandant of Dachau. Yeah, I was going to say, actually, that, that there's a couple people whose names kind of emerge as really key players after this. And, and one is Himmler and the other is Eike. Could, could you say a little bit about each and, and their vision for the camps and what role they play? Sure. I mean, kind of Himmler is, is the kind of the godfather of the camps, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and Eike is his enforcer. Um, so Himmler is the, the head of the SS. The SS emerges, <laughs> as I've tried to describe, um, as the main agency running the concentration camp system, this lawless system of terror with its own rules, its own organization, its own guards, its own staff, even its own acronym. I mean, the, 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 the <laughs> word, you know, the abbreviation KL for Konzentrationslager, um, which I use as the title of the book, um, I mean, that, that, that is a, a it, it, for Himmler, Konzentrationslager, KL, is, is, is almost like a copyright term. I mean, when, when other Nazi bigwigs start setting up uh, their own kind of camps after the invasion of Poland, for example, Himmler goes around and, and, and actually says, you know, look, I'm, you know, my, my camps are concentration camps. You can't call any other camps concentration camps. So Himmler is, is in charge of this system uh, overall and sometimes gets involved, as is his wont, in, 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 in minutiae to a mind-boggling extent. Um, but he's also in charge of the general line, I think, the, the, the camp system, the broad uh, uh, trajectory or route the camp system takes. Um, and his vision of the camps is one of lawless terror, an instrument of the regime 
to eliminate all those seen as standing in the way of the Nazis creating this mythical national community. And his, um, his targets, the, 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 the vision of his aim of who needs to be removed from the national community uh, uh, changes over time. So early on, he trains uh, his, his um, sites mainly on political opponents, above all on communists. Later in the 30s, he shifts it more to social outsiders. This is um, uh, small-time criminals, so-called asocials, the homeless beggars, prostitutes, uh, homosexuals, and so on. Uh, and then in the war, it, 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 it focuses increasingly on foreigners and then above all on Jews. Um, so this is kind of Himmler, and he's in, 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 in overall charge, as I say, like the godfather of the system, the mastermind. Um, but he needs somebody to, to, to implement his vision and to make it come true. And that man is Theodor Eike, um, who's a kind of long-term devoted Nazi fighter, bruiser, um, a very charismatic man amongst his uh, Nazi comrades, uh, and also a man who's fallen foul of the regime early on. Um, so Himmler uh, gives him a second chance to redeem himself. I mean, actually, kind of the, the I think, the effectively the call by Himmler to make Eike commandant of Dachau reaches Eike in a mental institution where he's held after a dispute with a local Gauleiter, a regional Gauleiter, um, so kind of a Nazi uh, bigwig. So Eike kind of owes everything to, to Himmler, and he repays him with uh, absolute devotion. And in the same way, he inspires absolute devotion from a hardcore of SS men, which he uh, gathers around himself. So Eike starts uh, implementing this vision of the camp in Dachau from summer 33, introduces new rules, new, re new regulations, and also introduces this camp kind of SS, this, this corpse of um, uh, committed, loyal, dedicated uh, SS men who seek a career in the concentration camps. I mean, you know, at the beginning of the Nazi regime, being posted to the camps, even as a commandant, wasn't a career. It was something kind of, you know, you did for a couple of weeks and then you moved on. But the men around Ike see this as um, a profession, effectively. Uh, and that it just happens that their profession is, is violence, terror and murder. Um, so Ike really sets, the, sets the, the basis, the groundwork of the camp system in, in Dachau and then later as Himmler's first inspector of the concentration comes a new title which comes with a new office in Berlin and he's then in charge of effectively implementing this uh, a general vision of the camps elsewhere where the Nazis set up concentration camps. Yeah, you actually, if I'm reading you right, you, you kind of suggest, or you, you do suggest that, that by maybe 35, early 36, there's really a kind of a standardized model that emerged for the camps. Can you can you describe that? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's true. I mean, this is the kind of, I mean, what, what, what happens kind of in 34, 35 is that the SS camp system is being made permanent. So I said mm. before, there is this kind of tug of war kind of at the heart of the regime about what kind of dictatorship it should become. Um, and it, it then becomes uh, clear eventually that the SS camp system will become permanent. Um, 
it gets permanent funding from the state, um, the SS, the campus S kind of is established and so on. So this is the moment where the uh, SS and Eike and Himmler then start to build new camps. Um, they, the, remember the early camps like Dachau were found. Um, Dachau was, 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 was this dilapidated factory. The hundreds of other camps early on in 33 are set up all over the place in, in, in sports grounds, pubs, bars, um, old hotels, even a ship. Um, what happens in the second of the 30s, now that this camp system is going to be permanent, is that the SS develop, develops a vision of what a kind of ideal concentration camp will look like. And they start uh, for the first time then to build from scratch um, new concentration camps. Uh, these are places like Sachsenhausen in 1936, uh, near Berlin, which becomes a kind of new model camp. Other new camps uh, uh, include Ravensbrück in 39, the first women's mm. camp, Mauthausen, Flossenburg, um, uh, Sachsen, uh, Sachsen, uh, uh, Buchenwald. So there are a number of these uh, 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 purpose-built camps. Dachau, the first camp from 33, is also completely rebuilt. So we've got, by 1939, by the time war breaks out, we have six camps in Germany and uh, uh, Austria, and these are all purpose-built new camps with, um, with, with, with prefabricated barracks, a roll call square, uh, uh, barbed wire surrounding the prisoner compound, an SS compound outside the prisoner compound, um, then, you know, different industries where prisoners work in the, in the uh, running of the camp. So you might have bakeries or tailors' workshops and so on. So what we have emerging is, is, is almost little towns or cities um, where the prisoner compound is only one part of it. I mean, you, you also have SS living quarters. Um, officers move to these new housing settlements with their families, with their children, which might go to SS kindergartens and so on. So this becomes a kind of a, a city or town um, rather than just some kind of found um, uh, place in the middle of, 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 of wherever the Nazis could find it. Um, so who are the guards? Where do the guards come from and how are they trained? Well, that's a good, that's another good question. Um, the, the, uh, just, I said at the beginning that there isn't a typical prisoner experience. There isn't, mm. there isn't a typical guard in that sense either. Uh, there's no typical camp either. All of this changes significantly over time. Very early on in 1933, as I said, the, the, the men who, who uh, uh, staff these camps um, are not career SS men who see some kind of future for themselves in the camp system. I mean, quite often they are just com commanded um, to certain camps, quite often they, you know, these are the, the, the local SA, um, SA or SS troops. Um, later on, in, in what Ike, one of the things Ike, as, as, as um, head of this uh, camp SS system, wants is he wants to recruit a devoted uh, uh, community body of SS men running this camp system and staffing this camp system. And he wants volunteers. These are men who really want to serve um, uh, the SS in the camps and fight, as Ike sees it, the internal enemy uh, behind barbed wire. So there's a lot of martial 
rhetoric and the SS effectively, um, or the camp SS presenting himself as the only troop before the war, which is already engaged in warfare. So that it tries to appeal to a lot of the, the, the men who want to fight, who um, maybe missed out on fighting the First World War and now want to kind of have some kind of battle against these supposed enemies. Of course, this is no battle. I mean, they, they, they just beating, abusing, terrorizing uh, and killing individual prisoners. Um, uh, so Ike wants volunteers uh, and he wants young men, young men. So these are kind of increasingly uh, men in their, in their very early 20s or uh, more often than not in their late teens who join the, the SS as new recruits uh, because Ike believed that they could be most easily molded. Um, so what emerges then kind of out of these recruits is a fairly small um, a community of like-minded, dedicated, brutal um, tormentors, um, which then over the coming years start filling a lot of the key positions in the camps. So this is kind of, so when we talk kind of, you know, by the time war breaks out, we have a, a committed core of uh, hardcore of campus as men and then a, a broader um, a body of, of, of guards and so on around them, some of them more committed, some of them less committed, but all of them as as volunteers. If you look at the end of the war, the picture has changed completely. So yeah. now you have a huge number of um, middle-aged uh, German army reservists who are drafted in effectively um, to the camps. Uh, so kind of, I think by 45, half or more of the SS staff in the camps are actually army reservists, uh, quite often elderly army reservists. So these are not people who've volunteered for the concentration camps in that sense, nor are they the young, bright-eyed volunteers that, that, that Eike had in mind in the 30s. How, how, so in the pre-war years, how violent were these camps, actually? Because you, you give a number of statistics about the number of people who are killed or... or, or die in the camps and it's quite startling in terms of the number of people who die and yet looking backwards from 45 it's actually startling in terms of how few people were killed in the pre-war years yeah i think that's i think that's a really important point to to bear in mind um i mean you're absolutely right that and i think i make that point early on in the book actually at the start of the book that we tend to kind of read the history of the camps backwards from the, mm. the, the, the terrifying, horrifying images which the liberators took in 1945 um, uh, uh, with, you know, mountains of, of corpses of starved, dead, dying prisoners mm -hmm. uh, all over the camps in ditches and so on. Um, and the, the, we tend to associate these images with the concentration camps as a whole. And what we need to understand is that uh, these kind of images describe a certain period in the time of the camps, namely the 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 the, the final stages. Um, if he'd gone to the camps in the in the mid 1930s or late 30s, they would have looked completely different. And one of the big differences is that though death by the late 1930s is is not entirely unusual, it isn't the norm either. Prisoners in the pre-war camps are far far more likely to survive and indeed to be released again than to be killed in the camps. Bear in mind that the, the, the 
function of the camps in the pre-war years is not mass extermination or systematic mm-hmm. killing. The function of the camps is 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 different. It is early on to crush the political opposition. It is later on to try and uh, 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 remove uh, and destroy what the Nazis call social outsiders. Uh, economic functions uh, come into this as well. Um, deterrence comes into this. There's all sorts of functions, but mass extermination is not one of the functions before the war. Uh, and that is one of the big things that changes after 1939. So let's pursue that a little bit because uh, I, as I mentioned, I take students to Europe, uh-huh. and I've learned over time that I will get more students to go with me to Europe if I take them to Auschwitz. Uh-huh. And that's a whole other topic that we could spend a while on, but, but what you point out in the book is that what most people think they know about Auschwitz is not the whole story. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think the, 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 I mean, Auschwitz is absolutely central to any history of the concentration mm-hmm. camps. I mean, there is, there is that, you know, that is beyond uh, question. Um, and Auschwitz does play a very important part in KL in, in, in my book. There's a number of chapters which deal uh, yeah. uh, exclusively more or less with Auschwitz. So there, there is no uh, uh, question about the absolute centrality of Auschwitz in this story. But kind of having talked about this for many years to, to, to students and other interested members of the public, it's become clear to me that there is a, a strange way in which most people think of Auschwitz and the camps and the Holocaust as more or less synonymous. So they think mm-hmm. of this as, as more or less being the same thing. And I would say three things about that. The first thing is that there is more to the Holocaust than Auschwitz. Um, Auschwitz is the single most deadly site of the Holocaust. Uh, uh, There's no other site in Nazi-controlled Europe where more Jews are murdered in a single place than Auschwitz. That said, the majority, the significant majority of Jews are still murdered elsewhere, either in ghettos or in ditches and forests mown down by special SS and police commandos in Eastern Europe, or in specific, specially dedicated death camps like Treblinka, um, mm-hmm. which serve only one function, and that is to kill as many Jews as quickly as possible. Concentration camps always have multiple functions. Um, uh, death camps like Treblinka and the Holocaust only have one function, that is to kill as many Jews as quickly as they can. Um, so there is more to the Holocaust than Auschwitz. There's also more to Auschwitz than the Holocaust. Um, mm. People tend to think of Auschwitz as a camp which was set up to exterminate the Jews of Europe. Um, but that's not true. Uh, Auschwitz is set up in 1940 initially as a camp to destroy the Polish political opposition. It then morphs uh, in the following year in 1941, in autumn 41, into a site where the SS imagines they will take huge numbers of Soviet POWs following the invasion of the Soviet Union in summer 41. Um, The massive expansion of the uh, Auschwitz main camp in Birkenau, which uh, is now associated with, for all of us, the site of the uh, gas chambers and the crematoria, which the Nazis or the SS builds to murder the Jews of Europe in Auschwitz. Um, This site of Birkenau is not set up in autumn 41, in order to kill or exterminate Jews, it is initially set up to house and work to death 
vast numbers mm. of Soviet POWs in the Nazi attempt to make the occupied East German, to put German settlements up in the East. Um, so there is more to Auschwitz uh, than the Holocaust. And kind of even at the height of the Holocaust in Auschwitz, there are uh, large numbers of prisoners uh, from uh, other backgrounds, Polish prisoners, Soviet prisoners, uh, Western European prisoners, and so on. Um, so there's more to, to Auschwitz and the Holocaust. And finally, there's more to the camp system than Auschwitz. Again, Auschwitz holds a central place, as I said, in any history of the camps. There is no camp that's more deadly. There is no camp uh, that holds more prisoners. But even at the height of the destructive power of Auschwitz, um, it holds uh, probably about a third of the prisoners in this whole camp system. So the majority of prisoners are held elsewhere. And Auschwitz is part of this much, much wider network of camps with, uh, if we look at the whole period of the Third Reich, 27 or so main camps and 1,100 or more satellites. So Auschwitz is part of this huge network with prisoners being sent to Auschwitz or taken from Auschwitz back to other camps with staff arriving uh, from elsewhere in Auschwitz or being sent elsewhere. I mean, uh, Rudolf Hess, who I mentioned before, the first commandant of Auschwitz, uh, learns his trade in Dachau in 1934. Hmm. He arrives in, 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 in Dachau in late 34 and learns about prisoner torment and abuse there. He uh, catches the eye of uh, his superiors and moves up in the hierarchy. He then becomes a middle manager, if you will, in Sachsenhausen, uh, where he learns early in the war uh, about systematic uh, mass shootings and killings. Um, and then he graduates to mass murder in Auschwitz. So the, 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 the Auschwitz is linked to the other camps. It is part of a network of lawless terror. Uh, and I think we need to place Auschwitz back into this much wider context if we really want to understand it properly. Did, did the existence, were, were the camps simply a location where the Holocaust and genocide happened? Or did the existence and, and role and function of the camps actually play a role in shaping the kind of decisions and actions that lead to the Holocaust? Um, probably a bit of both. I mean, with Auschwitz, the first thing you have to say is that, um, as I said, it's not set up as a Holocaust uh, yeah. camp. It, it, it gradually... Um, over a period of several months in 1942 um, is turned into one of the death camps of the Holocaust. And Auschwitz is very unusual in that it is the only concentration camp um, which is also a major death camp of the Holocaust. So it's a kind of hybrid concentration camp and death camp, and that makes it quite unusual. But that process isn't premeditated, uh, and it it... it it takes several months, as I say, for that to emerge in 1942. And even then, um, initially, a death camp like Treblinka uh, is far more destructive in 1942 than Auschwitz is. So in that sense, Auschwitz comes quite late, if you will, to, to the Holocaust. At the same mm -hmm. time, some of the um, uh, measures which had been pioneered in the camps have an influence well beyond the camps. Um, I mean, the SS in Auschwitz starts uh, in 1941 when Soviet POWs arrive, for example, to differentiate between prisoners who can be still used for work in some way and be worked to death and those who will be killed straight away. So the idea of selections, of, of, of lethal selections, 
comes in 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 the camps quite early. Um, think about the uh, uh, the yellow triangles identifying um, Jews all over Europe or in in, in many places of, of Europe as the Nazis um, take over and implement their policy during the war. Well, these these kind of markers are actually first introduced in concentration camps before the war. Um, the use of Cyclone B gas in Auschwitz is pioneered in 1941. That's before the Holocaust uh, 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 hits the camp as well. So there are a number of, 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 of developments in the concentration camps going back to the period before 1942, which have some influence on what happens afterwards. One of the really startling things uh, that comes across in your book is is, is the numbers and, and the explosion of the camp population, the size of the camp population, and the explosion of the number of camps and especially subcamps. So, so why do these camps get so numerous in the middle of the war? Yes, I mean it is kind of it is it is mind boggling. I mean when you, when the war breaks out, as I said before, we have some twenty odd thousand prisoners in six camps. Yeah. Um, by early 1945, a few months before the war ends, we have well over 700,000 prisoners a day uh, in hundreds and hundreds of camps and, and, and satellite camps. Um, if we try to understand why this happens, I think there's, there's probably two things I would, I would focus on for now. One is that the regime, of course, uses the camps as it uh, uh, spreads its tentacles all over Europe to um, uh, break and intimidate the political opposition to establish its its rule, kind of in 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 a number of these different countries and areas, the regime takes over. So by forty three, forty four, we have a camp system which literally stretches all the way from uh, way in Eastern Europe, from the Baltic states, all the way to the west and the the small British Channel Island of Alderney. So part of this has something to do with the political domination and attempt and aim of the regime to um, establish its rule and crush any opposition. So a, a number of these uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of prisoners who enter this camp system, who are dragged to the camp system, are seen as political opponents in one way or another. The second point would be the the the, the role of the uh, camps in the Holocaust, uh, which I've described as the mm-hmm. camps become more dominant in, in, in the Holocaust o- over time or take a, a leading role. More and more camps are then set up also just for Jewish prisoners who are taken over by the SSS concentration camps, former forced, forced labor camps and places like this. Uh, and one third point to add maybe to my two points um, is that <laughs> The, and that, that is absolutely essential as well, is, 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 is the economy and forced labor. And we haven't really yeah. talked about this. Mm-hmm. Um, forced labor is, is, is crucial to the camps right from the beginning. Um, but in the early years of the camps, labor is used above all else to break prisoners, to torment prisoners, to abuse prisoners, to humiliate prisoners. Um, quite often, labor is completely senseless. I mean, you know, moving kind of huge, heavy rocks from one end of the camp to, the, to, the, to, the, to another and then back. Um, later on, the SS realizes that the prisoners they have in the camps could be used as an economic resource in some way. And they start initially to try and uh, 
basically sell the these slave laborers in the camps to the regime uh, as uh, perfect um, workers for providing the raw materials for the cities Hitler is dreaming of building. So that new camps like um, Mauthausen um, and Flossenburg in the late 30s are set up near quarries where the prisoners are then, then forced into, into quarrying. Um, what happens, but that's before this satellite camp system it, it expands mm-hmm. so dramatically. What happens in the war, in the middle of the war, really, is that um, the SS or Himmler feels himself uh, increasingly forced, I think, in order to um, keep hold of this camp system and to to say to other Nazi leaders, you know, I'm, you know, where 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 the SS is is hugely influential and important in the war effort to try and uh, force these slave laborers into um, production uh, that's important or construction that's important for the war effort. So increasingly, from forty two forty three onwards. Uh, Prisoners are used as slave laborers and often work to death as slave laborers for huge, gigantic uh, uh, war effort-related, um, uh, you know, factories which are being built underground, uh, construction which is set up to house arms factories and 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 uh, you know, or, or clearing rubble in German cities or so on. So. Kind of what that means in turn is that then these satellite camps are set up near factories, near construction sites, uh, in German cities and so on, where the prisoners are then uh, abused and exploited. Um, that in turn means also that terror becomes even more visible than it's ever been before. I mean, one of the important perspectives of the book, I mean, so far we've mainly talked about the prisoners and the perpetrators. Exactly, um, yeah. But the third perspective, in a sense, which I try to again and again weave into the narrative, is that of the onlookers, mm-hmm. uh, and above all, uh, what you might call ordinary Germans. And what happens as this satellite camp system spreads is that more and more Germans see prisoners uh, on the streets or might maybe even work next to them or command them on building sites, uh, uh, or they see um, uh, cars full of corpses, vans full of corpses being, being driven back to camps. They smell the smoke from the crematoria. They they hear stories about escaped prisoners or might even take part in hunts for escaped prisoners. So what happens later on in the war is that this camp system, this network of camps becomes more and more enmeshed with German society and if, if if you will the climax of that is is in the last few months of the war where you mm-hmm. then have the dissolution of the camp system and death marches uh winding their way all the way from abandoned camps to god knows where quite often without any sense of of, of clear purpose or direction and they they literally march through german villages towns i mean through the middle of nowhere i've got one scene in the book fairly late on where a uh, German uh, woman, a kind of middle-aged German woman who works on a farm in the middle of nowhere in Bavaria, one afternoon uh, witnesses a track of a few hundred prisoners from Buchenwald kind of mm-hmm. arrive in, in, in that tiny hamlet. Um, they stay overnight. The SS guy leading this uh, uh, track commands um, some space for his men uh, and uh, orders some food to be cooked for the SS. Um, they shoot some prisoners and then they move on. And these kind of scenes happen all over Germany. Um, so one of the 
kind of the reason why I think that's an important story is not least because of one of the many myths about the camps after the war in Germany, at least, is that these camps were generally invisible and that ordinary Germans didn't really know what, what went on. And one of the things I tried to describe in the book is that right from the start, many Germans had a fairly good general idea uh, what the camps were about. Or we're, 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 we're starting to run out of time. I have a couple broad kind of concluding questions. Um, and, and one of them is this, this, there's this kind of phrase, and I think it's Primo Levi's, although when I, when I Googled it to try and figure it out, I get a whole bunch of references to beer companies. But this, the 20th century is the century of the lager, mm-hmm. of the camp. And I'm wondering if it's helpful to think about the 20th century that way and thus to think about the Nazi camps as, as something, maybe not distinctive, but something that stands in for a broader period of time. Well, I mean, I, I, kind of, I, I think you could ask, answer this in two different ways. I mean, I think the, the, the Holocaust and the concentration camps um, do hold a very central, important place in in a history of the 20th century. So I think there's, 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 there can't be any any question about that. Um, whether that makes the camps into symbols for the 20th century, mm. I think is something else altogether. And I think it's Mark Mazower who, who who asked the question. You know, why is one symbol, one historical symbol, better than another for a yeah. certain Period. So, I mean, the, the, there's a number of other uh, more positive symbols one could think of uh, for the 20th century than the camps. Um, so, I kind of, I'm, 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 you know, I'm, 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 I'd be reluctant personally to to go down that route. The broader question, I think, that also then uh, uh, opens up is the question we've briefly touched on before, and that is the the question: to what extent the Nazi camps are are related to to other camps. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, historians have, comparative historians have done a little bit of work on, you know, what are the similarities, what are the differences? Perhaps more interesting in a way is is the work of transnational historians who yeah. could start to ask, but again, not many people have done this surprisingly, you know, what are the influences maybe on the Nazi camps, on other camp systems and vice mm-hmm. versa? Um, mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, in, in a sense, that was a central question, though one that wasn't pursued in the end in the infamous or famous Historiker Strike, the, the, the debate, the quarrel of historians in Germany in the 1980s, where the uh, provocative uh, right-wing German historian Ernst Nolte kind of claimed that the Gulag had in some way uh, influenced, if you will, uh, the Nazi camps. Yes. and. I've tried to kind of also look at that, and I have to say I've, I've found no no evident evidence to back that up. But nonetheless, I think these questions of, you know, how the Nazi camps or the Nazi terror system might be related, say, to terror systems elsewhere uh, in in fascist uh, states like uh, Italy or Spain. We know that Himmler goes to uh, have a look at Franco's camps in Spain. A Spanish police commission visits Sachsenhausen uh, in 1940 in Germany. Um, equally, you know, there are connections between uh, Italy and uh, Nazi Germany as well. So these might be kind of areas where um, we can come to more fruitful um, uh, themes than just this kind of bland and generalized talk of the century of camps. 
So we're taping this in the middle of July, and probably it will post in late July or early August. And this is frequently a time when people are on vacation, have a little bit more time to read than otherwise. Um, so I'm wondering if you could suggest one or two books uh, that were meaningful to you, whether they're academic histories or whether they're memoirs or, or fiction or something else. What, what, what should our listeners read this weekend? Wow, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, kind of speaking for myself, Kind of, you know, without without moving the author too much uh, into the middle of this story, um, I've, I mean, <clears throat> you know, I spent ten years researching and writing KL, um, and I have to say that as soon as I was done with my days reading and writing, I tried to read things which are about as far removed from <laughs> history and German history, and especially the the history of of the Nazi period as possible. Um, so, you know, I might read some, some Evelyn War uh, mm. or kind of something kind of very, very different to this. Um, but, you know, uh, kind of if I think about books which I think, um, you know, readers might want to look at and they might not have come across them already. I mean, one book which really was important uh, to me is, is a memoir which was written not that long ago by... Um, uh, Thomas Bergenthal, and it's called A Lucky mm. Child. And uh, Bergenthal's story is, is is quite extraordinary. And actually, one of my chapters, I mean, all of the chapters in, in KL start with an individual story and, and history and to try and outline some of the general themes which are going to be taken up in that chapter. And the last big chapter of the book starts with Thomas Thomas's story. Um, and it is a story of a 10-year-old boy in 1945, early 45, who arrives, who survives the death march from Auschwitz as a 10-year-old mm. uh, and arrives in Sachsenhausen in, in, in early 1945, lies in the infirmary there. I think he, some, some of his toes are amputated. And the, the general uh, likelihood that a boy like him would survive the last few months in a concentration camp were absolutely remote and still he survives. Um, and he survives, uh, not least I think because a much older Norwegian prisoner called Ott Nansen, um, takes pity on him, uh, visits him in the infirmary, brings him food. Um, and that is one of the contributing factors, I think, to his, 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 his ultimate survival. And, Thomas Bunkel tells this story kind of many decades after the war in a very moving uh, and powerful way. Uh, uh, and one could also read, as I did in the book, the, mem the, the diaries which this Norwegian prisoner who meets him at 45 writes mm. at the time. Uh, I mean, that is one of the extraordinary sources uh, for historians are secret diaries by prisoners and Nansen is one of the prisoners who keeps a diary which runs to several hundreds of pages. So oh. Nansen actually describes the moment he, 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 he encounters Tommy, as he calls him, kind of in, in, in Sachsenhausen and he leaves him in spring 45 convinced that he will never see him again and as Thomas Bergenthal then, then writes in his book, they do meet again after the war. He visits Ott Nansen in, in Norway and his family. And it's a very moving, powerful, um, sobering uh, uh, book. So that's, that's what I would recommend uh, to your readers and listeners. Mm. Well, I've got something to do this weekend, 
what are you doing now? What's your next, or maybe I should ask, maybe you won't be doing this subject again, but what is your next project? Um, well, I deliberately, after a, a, a very, very big project like this, wanted to yeah. kind of wait a little bit to decide kind of where where it will take me next. So there's a number of projects which I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about. I'm, I'm, I'm still interested in, in perpetrators kind of of the Holocaust that might do something there but i think i've also got some ideas of moving beyond the 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 third reich so kind of but i think i just wanted to really finish this book uh uh, it's taken me a long time and just take a breather and decide where to go next as one of my previous interviewees said the proper response to that question is i'm going to go garden or i'm going to go run or something anything else than look at materials again well that is kind of that is that is absolutely right. I mean, kind of yes. Uh, maybe maybe I'll maybe I should get into gardening or something. <laughs> well, it's a wonderful book, and I know that we've just touched the surface of it. And I hope that um, those who are listening to the program have a chance to um, to read it and and get a full appreciation for all the work you've done. But for now, um, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thanks so much for having me. Well, I hope that we'll have a chance to have you on again. But until then, um, I hope you uh, have a great post-book relaxation well thank you very much yes i'll look into the gardening thank you all right take care bye now bye-bye you've been listening to an interview with nick vaxman about his new book kl a history of the nazi concentration camps if you enjoyed this interview you can listen to previous podcasts through itunes or from the webpage for new books and genocide studies part of the new books network of podcasts i hope you'll come back next time when I'll continue our summer-long series of interviews about the camps and ghettos in World War II by talking with Dan Stone about his wonderful new book about the end and memory of the concentration camp system. Until then, thanks for the download, and have a great month.